I'm glad you're here today. Are you glad you're here? Amen. Amen. We're, we're in a series. This is the middle of three um, sermons in, in the series. Um, I've called it Hard Truth. I called it that simply because sometimes it is. Do you ever find Christianity hard? You can tell the truth. This is church. Yeah, it's sometimes, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard because of just existing in the external climate that's around us. You know, since the fall, being a Christian oftentimes in, in our history is like having to put up and, and swim against the undertow of the, of the culture or the events or the circumstances that are happening around us. And that can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's hard because um, there's an internal struggle. Um, even though we're saved, even though we love Jesus, that, that we still experience the, the difficulty of, of the residue of our old life and the, and the pool of, of uh, our, our flesh that we have to continually be on guard against and, and uh, the struggle within our own heart and mind over certain things and certain matters when they arise. So sometimes it's difficult. And we're, we're going to the book of Romans. Paul's trying to give us some help. And he, he has written a, a, a doctrinal thesis on the, the theology and mass, majesty of salvation. That's what the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all about. It's, it's a marvelous work. And, and I hope you've taken time some point in your life. And if not, I strongly urge it that you study. Read and study. Read it slow, but, but glean as much as you can out of the book of Romans. I promise you, you'll never exhaust it. No one ever has yet. Um, but in the 12th chapter, which is where our text is taken from today, just the first two verses, we, we find Paul um, shifting his attention. He's, he's setting the doctrinal um, part aside, and now he's talking about real practical issues. He's talking about now, how do, we, how do we take this salvation, this gospel message, and what does it really look like in real time? And how does that to affect our lives? And so he makes this pivot in his, in his direction of, of how he's writing and what he's writing about. And, and that brings us to our text. Let's, let's read our text and then we'll launch into our study for today. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, is what our text says. But as if you were here last Sunday, you know that we opted for the King James translating, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This, this passage, these two verses, uh, there's so much that Paul put... He, he, uh, you can tell a man didn't write this. This had to be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In, the, in these two verses, he lays out a master plan for Christian discipleship. He, he, it's, it's the big picture of what it, what it looks like and what it means and, and what's called on us to, as, as Christians. It's this master plan. It's the 30,000-foot aerial view of discipleship. And you can take every, every part, every, almost every word of these two verses and drill down and drill down and drill down to find out really layers and layers of meaning and purpose and application to your life. And you'll not exhaust it. This is discipleship in two verses. And if we're going to be a people who are devoted to, to the presence of God, to the people of God, to the purposes of God, then we need to pay attention to these types of 
passages in Scripture. And so we're trying to unpack it. Last week, we talked about Paul's appeal. We took the first verse, and that was he was making his appeal. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And we discussed for a little while what each of those phrases meant, but then we discussed the reasonability. If you were here last week, we talked about this. Is it a reasonable appeal? Does God, what God asks or expects of us by way of our devotion back to him, is it, is it reasonable? Is it logical? Is it, is it rational? Is the expense worth the investment? Um, he's asking for this type of devotion that, that's complete, that's sacrificial, that's identifiable. And we concluded, if you were here last week, and if, if not, if you want to catch up, you can go on to our website. You can find it, um, the video of it. You can get the podcast of it and catch up where we've been. But we concluded that even though following Christ sometimes has its challenges and its difficulties and, its, and, its, and the hardships that come with being a Christian, that it's, it's really as we factor in, as Paul did, he said, by the mercies of God, when we factor in his mercy, when we factor in where we should be today without Jesus, where we could be today without Jesus, when we factor in what the enemy's plans are and devices are for us, if we factor in remove his mercy and, and we're left undone and unchecked in our sin and in, in our um, condemnation. When we factor in his mercy, what he asks of us and by way of devotion and discipleship is not only reasonable, it's a bargain. Amen? It's, it's not just reasonable. It's, it's the best deal in town that you can find. Okay, so, so we made that conclusion. And we want to move on today now, um, and I want to move from the appeal now. The second part, we're going to talk about the application. Paul's made his appeal, and now he's going to start unpacking how it applies to the way that we live. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's the portion of the second verse that we're going to deal with um, for today. And, and the, it, it lays out for, I, I'm an outline kind of person. I like line upon line, systematic kind of, this, this is like a, a dream for a guy like me because it just lays out perfectly, um, into, in, believe it or not, into three points. Because um, he talks about what not to do, and then he says what to do, and then he says how to do it. That's a good outline, and that's going to be our outline for the message today. Father, thank you for your presence among us. Thank you for your word. I pray that your word accomplishes your purposes today. I pray that your word is heard. I pray that it's spoken and delivered clearly. I, I pray that it's rooted inside of our hearts and spirits. And I pray that your word doesn't return void to you, that it brings fruitfulness out of our lives. Holy Spirit, govern over the word of God today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're starting out. What not to do. That's where Paul starts in, in this passage that we're talking about. Don't be conformed to the world. The word there, conformed, is schema in, 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 the, in the Greek, and we would get our word schematic from it. So that gives you a, a nice word picture of, of what he's talking about by conforming. Don't conform to the world. It, it's, literally, it means to be fashioned after, okay, to be fashioned after. It's, it's think of a blueprint for a, a building um, project, or think of a, those of you who have ever sewn anything or a seamstresses that, that there's those patterns. A schema is a plan. Um, how many of you understand that the world, the devil, has a plan for you? 
We talk about the plan of God, but, but there's also contrary plans at work in the, in the world and in the earth. And his plan is to get you to conform to the world, to get you to, to fashion you after its way of living, its way of acting, its way of thinking, its, its way of doing life. By definition, conformity is the tendency for an individual to align their attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors with those of the people around them. Psychologists have found that people tend to copy other people's choices, listen to this, even when they know the decision does not reflect their own actual preferences. That's the power of conformity. The people, when I, when I, I read that in, in the, the, art, the psych, psychological article I, I, was, I was perusing, I, I, thought, I couldn't help but think of Romans 7. That, that's Romans 7. Um, Paul says, I, I understand what's right. I know what's right. I think what's right. I plan to do what's right, everything, and then I don't. <laughs> And everyone can say amen because we've all experienced that reality in life. And sometimes it's because we're conforming to patterns and fashions that are around us. And they overrule and override even what we know to be right. Even what we desire to to think or to do. Other translations of of this verse um, are, are interesting. The New Living Translation says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world. The Message Bible says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. It's a pretty good one. There's a, I think I've told you before, there's an old youth curriculum that we used a million years ago. But it's, it was entitled, If the World Fits, You're the Wrong Size. That's called conformity. But what I, the, the translation I want to kick off in, in for and use as a springboard today is, is probably the best known translation, most commonly used translation of this specific verse. J.B. Phillips, where he says, don't let the world, what? Squeeze you into its mold. It's a great word picture. That's conformity. That's the goal of the enemy, to, to conform us, to squeeze us into the mold. This world has molds. There's molds, fashions, patterns that the enemy has designed for our hurt, but to get us to move in that direction of, of conformity, there's a mold of temptation. The devil has a plan, and his plan is very simple in this using this specific mold. And, it, and it's really just a s- simple three-step process to see, to desire, and take. That's it. That's the pattern of temptation. But it's worked so well for him that he can't set it aside. He hasn't found anything better to replace it. So he keeps using it over and over and over again. It's so simple, but it's so effective that for centuries, for generations, since the fall, he has used this mold to, to as the downfall sometimes and certainly as a stumbling block for believers all of the time, we, we can look in Genesis, go to the beginning of, 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 of those, this whole thing, Genesis 3, 6. It says, so when the woman saw, saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, to be wanted to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. You see the pattern? You see, you see, you see the mold? It's, it's pretty pretty simple. It's pretty clear right there. We can go to the book of Joshua. If you recall, um, 
the, the children of Israel entered the promised land, and the first thing they faced was the, the city of Jericho, a fortified city. And you know the miracle that God performed um, there around, as the children marched seven days around the city, and, and the walls collapsed. Well, this is after that battle. And they're going to this little podunk, non-defended town called Ai, and they said, this is going to be a piece of cake compared to Jericho. And they go in, and they're defeated. And, and they couldn't figure out why, and they seek the Lord, and they find out, push comes to shove. They, they were told at Jericho, destroy it all. Keep nothing. And they find out this one little guy named Achan kept some stuff. Kept some stuff. And they've, the Lord has revealed this. And now Achan is standing in front of Joshua, and he's saying, what did you do? And Achan says this, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, a gold bar, and I coveted, I desired, I wanted them. And so I took them. Simple pattern. Who, who hasn't fallen for that? I don't think there's a person in this room, if we tell the truth, can't say we've, ever been, we've never been guilty of falling into that mold, into that pattern unfolding in our life. And then James 1.14. Um, James is, the, is one, the book in the Bible that you, you have this love-hate relationship with. Because James is blunt. James is the six-year-old of the Bible. He just says it. No filters. And, and sometimes when you read James, you get a little offended at him because he's too blunt. Because he doesn't leave any wiggle room. We like gray areas sometimes because it gives us a little comfort. But James gives us none. And he says this. He says each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. That's when he sees something that he desires, that he wants. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth. He takes hold of it, it conceives, and it gives birth to sin. And when sin's fully grown, it brings forth death. There's this mold of temptation that the enemy uses and continues to use and will use in your life. He has and he will continue to use that pattern to try to get you to conform to a world system. There's the mold of desire. 1 John 2.16, he says, all that's in the world, everything the devil uses to fashion our lives comes under one of these three headings. The lust of the flesh, that's, that's the desire to satisfy our, our senses, our physical gratification. The lust of the eye, desire for material gain. Consumerism, we could update and, and use that in our Terminology for today, this attitude of consumerism, this insatiable appetite we have for more stuff. We can never quite get enough. You know, and we have the thing at home and it's working fine and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's blue and they came out with a red one. We got to have the red one. You know, there's people who will, a new model of a certain phone comes out and they will stand in line for 10 hours before, so they're the first one in the store to get it. Whereas if they waited a day or two, they could walk right in, get it, and leave. We're driven. We're driven by this desire, this lust of the eye. And the pride of life, the desire for status and control, getting enough clicks and likes. And not only getting enough, but, but who's clicking and who's liking is real important to us. These three things, they're like gravity. They, they pull on our soul. They pull on, on our, our hearts and our minds. And, and, and when we give into them, they, they ground us to the world. They affix us to and track and pull us to the world. There's the mold of society, social norms we could call. 
social, and every culture has one. It's the, the, the values that a culture espouses, that a culture promotes. They're, they're, it's the way of, of doing life and thinking and, and acting. Or, or if not all culture, you're even more personal is your specific peer group. Those who are, are in, you identify with, your own generation, your own group, your own, your own tribe. It says that social norms, by definition, are the perceived, informal, mostly unwritten rules that define acceptable and appropriate actions within a given group or community. Thus, it guides human behavior. It directs us. It moves us. It, it controls us. This is these social norms. And in John, there's a, a, a verse that I thought was very applicable at this moment in time. It says that, that there were times, there, there were many, authority, even authorities, who were believing in Jesus. There are many who were hearing Christ, seeing what he done, and said, this is the Son of God. They were believing this is the Messiah. But for fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't say it out loud. They wouldn't confess it because they knew they'd be put out of the synagogue. It's called conformity. It's called conformity because of fear of the Pharisees. They wouldn't let it be known even though they believed in their heart. They couldn't let it out because they were afraid of the pressure, the social norms that would be brought to bear on them if they broke ranks, if, if they went against the, the standard way of thinking. If they, see, for them to say, I believe in Jesus, it wasn't PC at the time. It wasn't correct at the time. It wouldn't be accepted and, and it would be disapproved of. So as a result, they, they simply didn't confess it. They didn't admit it out loud. Today's leading model, there's all kinds of molds we could talk about today. This will be the last one I'll give you. Social media, online platforms and networking sites and, and video sites and blogs and podcasts and text messages and all the things that come along with social media and Facebook and Twitter and all, all the different um, platforms that, that try to capture our attention. And the systems that are behind them that, that track um, your specific patterns of likes and dislikes and the way that you go. And, and, and they, they, they tracked so they could fashion your behavior. Isn't it interesting? I don't know if you've had this experience. If you're on the Internet at all, I'm sure you have. Where um, you, you, you go and, and look up one item. And now you can't get it out of, of your computer. Every now pop ups and all these all these ads come and, you know, and you, you open your Bible app and over on the side is a banner advertising that thing you looked up one time because it's it's the power it's the, the, of, of social media. It's, it's customized conformity. It's personalized propaganda. They, they they're able to to see what you're doing and then fashion and customize a, a, a strategy on how to move you in one direction or another. Conformity is a tremendous tool that the enemy uses. It's one of his primary tools in his arsenal. Listen, the devil doesn't even care if you call yourself a Christian. He doesn't, he doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't care if you, if, if you give and serve and do all those wonderful things as long as your real life is fashioned after one of his molds. He'll put up with all the rest as long as he knows that your life is conformed 
to something that he endorses, that, that he approves of. And the bad news in this is that conformity to the world is our default. We need to understand that about us. Conformity to the world is our default. We all know Genesis um, 1, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Hallelujah. How wonderful. We, we've had heard countless sermons and messages and references to, to that reality. But then there's also Genesis 5, that Adam lived 130 years and that he fathered children. And those, those children were born in his likeness and image, not God's. And every human being since then has been born into the image and likeness, a fallen image and like a broken image and likeness of Adam and not of God because of sin that entered the world. David, no wonder, said, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. But there's good news in that God in his mercy sent his son. And in sending his son, now those who are in Christ, the molds are broken. I said the molds are broken. That the, the, they've been destroyed. Listen to Colossians. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven your trespasses by, listen how he did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. You understand that there was a written document. And on that written document, a legal document, was listed all the stuff you did. All the reasons you didn't deserve anything short of death. And, and the document is what the devil used to accuse you of. It's what the devil used to hold up in God's face and say, this is why this person belongs to me, not you. It was recorded and written down. But look what happened. It says that God, in his great mercy, he set it aside, nailing it to his cross. Get this picture. Everything you've done, every sin, every violation of the word of God and the laws of God, written down, put on a paper, nailed on a cross, and the blood of Christ flowing down, covering it. The blood of Christ washing it, paying the price for it, saying, yeah, they did it. I'll take the punishment. That's, that's the beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, that it, he did away, he set aside all the accusations that the enemy could bring to us, he can't any longer because we've been set free by the blood and person of Jesus Christ. So what do we not do? We don't conform to the world. What do we do? We're transformed, right? What do we do? Be transformed, he says. You, you know the word. It, it's metamorpho. You know, the, the illustration that's always used is the, the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. That's a, it's a metamorphosis. It's a change from one thing to another. Romans 8, 29 says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, even though it's using the word conform, don't be confused. I don't know why translators translate it with conform, because the word is metamorpho. Be transformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
be transformed. Listen, the purpose of transformation isn't to make you into a better version of who you were. It's to change you into something you've never been. Okay? That's the goal of transformation. At salvation, you're born again. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the life of Christ. Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he what? It's a new creation. It's very important you understand a certain two-letter word that's in that passage. He is a new creation. Not he will be, not he's becoming, but he is a new creation. It's a condition. It's a state of being that happens the moment we are in Christ. We are a new creation. You are right now part of that unique one-of-a-kind species called the one new man that Ephesians talks about. In Christ, you are one new man. In Christ, no wonder the Bible talks about us and calls us things like aliens, foreigners, strangers, pilgrims, in our relationship to the world, in our relationship, the, the systems and patterns that the enemy's trying to get us to conform to, we, we are strangers to them. We are, we are foreigners to them because we're part of this, this new body called one new man. Transformation now becomes the, the progressive working out of who you already are in Christ. It's, it's, it's so important we understand that. We always think of, of, of more we have to become. But the reality is transformation is the progressive working of the Holy Spirit to work out who we already are in Christ. It, it's, it, it's an amazing reality. Can, can I tell you something? You'll never be more saved than you are right now. You'll never be more forgiven than you are right now. You'll never have more eternal life than you have right now. Colossians 2 says, See that no one takes you captive by vain philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. In other words, he said, don't be conformed to the world. That's what he's saying in, in short. Don't give in to the conformity of the world that's around you. Um, but he says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ dwells all the fullness of God. And you've been filled in him. Do you see that picture? All of God is in all of Christ. All of Christ is in all of you. That ought to excite you. That ought to tell you something. That ought to make you real, feel real good about yourself. You've, you'll never have more Jesus than you have right now. You'll never have more Holy Spirit than you have right now because you are complete in him. Is there a working out? We know that. But it's not a working out to become. It's a working out to release. Do you see that? It's, it's not, uh, uh, discipleship isn't about becoming something more. Discipleship's about releasing the more that's already in us in Christ. And that takes a lot of the pressure off. When I just have to become who I already am. That's transformation. The question it leads us to, how do we do it? How do we do it in my last 10 minutes? You don't be conformed to the world. 
you do be tra are transformed. How do you do it? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Let's try to unpack that for a couple of minutes. Um, I'm going to throw even more scripture at you. So if you're taking notes, just write the reference down. Um, you won't have time to try and fill in the blanks. The mind is immaterial. Okay, we're talking about our mind. It's the immaterial part of us. It's a seat of reason. It's where there's thoughts and beliefs and perceptions and desires. It's, it's where, where we, we think and motivation and memory reside. Okay, our mind is part of our soul. And it works in concert with, with our will and emotions. Um, so, so it's that immaterial, eternal part of us. It's important because both sin and righteousness begin in our mind. That's, that's worth noting if you take notes. As a man thinks in his heart, as a man thinks in his mind, the Bible uses heart and mind interchangeably very often. As a man thinks in his mind, so is he. So is he, okay? So both sin and righteousness begin in our mind. This new way of living that we have in Christ, it requires a new way of thinking. You can't live a Christian life the way you used to think. Not successfully. You can't come, come to an altar, have a, an encounter with the living God, give your heart and life to him, and then go away and continue to think the way you always did. You just can't do that. This new living requires a new thinking. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you think like a disciple yet. Sorry. See, we're in Christ. That's a fact. But now we need to learn to think like Christ. Our minds need to be renewed. Our spirits have been re reborn. But our minds have to be renewed. How does that unfold? Let me, let me read a, a passage to you. 2 Corinthians 3.18. You'll know it as you hear it. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is done by the Spirit of God. And, and watch this. So this transforming into a new image from glory to glory, that's done, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. You can't transform yourself. I can't transform my life. That's, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But the beholding part is up to us. We choose what we're going to behold, what we fix our eyes on, what we're, what we're going after. We choose. And if we don't choose to behold, transforming gets real difficult. We make the job of the Holy Spirit and, and we sort of delay him. We interfere with his work because we control what we behold. So when we're talking in our text today, transformation is the role of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of our mind, the discipline of new patterns in our mind is our job. If you just sit back and say, well, I want to be, I'm going to be transformed and in, in, in my mind's going to be renewed, and you just sit there, there's no mind renewing taking place. Even if you're praying, even if you're crying, even, even if you're saying, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, transform me, transform me, transform me. If you're doing nothing, it's not happening. It's not taking place. We've, we've tied his hands. God always includes us in our own sanctification. 
He always does. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've heard that ver- the part of that verse many times, but keep reading. For it's God who works in you to both will and do of his own good pleasure. So it's this combination. It's this, it's this working together. You work out your salvation and the Holy Spirit does the work. All at the same time, there's this concert going on. So as in a couple minutes I, I have less, uh, left, I want to give you um, some ideas of our part. This is not an exhaustive list, but when we talk about having our minds renewed so, so that the Holy Spirit is free to transform our lives so that we look more like Jesus and not be conformed to the world. Here, let, let me give you, um, I, I have seven things. We'll see if we, how many we can get through. I'll just stay real close to my notes and not look up. And you can use this list as sort of like a self-check. A little, you can take it home and just every day meditate on one, every day think about one of them, okay? So um, how, how, what's our part in renewing of, of our own minds? Uh, number one, our meditation. And meditation, not talking about our just passing thoughts, or, um, but I'm talking about the things that, that we wrestle with in our minds, the, the things that we ponder, the, things that, the thoughts that we, we dwell on. And Psalm 1, the, the, the first of, of all the Psalms, talks about a person who refuses to walk with the ungodly or stand with sinners or, or sit um, with the scornful. How do they do that? How do they not conform to the, the pressures of the world that's around? It says, his delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So the word of God is front and center. And he meditates on the word of God, not on the stuff that everyone else is thinking about, that everyone else is meditating on. If if we don't want to be conformed to the way the world thinks, then we can't meditate on the things that the world meditates on. We meditate on the, the, the psalmist in 19, Psalm 19 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Our meditation, number two, our mindset. Our mindset's our worldview. It's what and how we think about life. It's the lens through which we see life and we filter all the other things. Romans 6a says to, to set our minds on the flesh is death, but we also have an, oppor- an, an alternative. We can set our minds on the spirit, which brings life and peace. Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So we're to set our minds and we're to set them on higher things, higher things than this earth, higher things in this world. Instead of cursing darkness, we, we light candles. Instead of getting angry and, and fearful as we hear the news, we intercede for our nation. So we, we, we take more literal when, when John writes that as he is, so are we in the world, we, we take that more literal, that we are the representation of Jesus in the earth today. And that calls for a different kind of living, a different kind of responding, a different kind of mindset. When you recognize that you're on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, that changes your mindset. And we, we bring those, that kind of thinking into our day-to-day living. Number three, the content of our mind. Our content, the content of your mind. If you remember nothing else today, this is this is transformative. The content of your mind affects the character of your life. Simple but powerful. The content of your mind affects the character of your life. 
If you take notes, write it down. If you don't take notes, look down the row, see who is, and ask them to send them to you. And you know Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, just, what's pure, what's lovely, what, what's um, excellent, what's commendable, if there's anything worth praise, think about those things. I wonder how much time we spend thinking about things that aren't helping us, that aren't renewing our minds, things that are feeding other aggravations and annoyances and hostilities and, and things that are, are not feeding our spirit. Not, not, we're not thinking on things that the Holy Spirit can take hold of and transform us with. Think on these things. Number four, our conversation. Luke 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the abundance of the mind, your mouth speaks. James talks about the power of the tongue. He gives the illustration of the small rudder that can steer has a strength and power to steer a massive ship. He says that in Proverbs, the wise man says that the tongue has in it the power of life and death. Again, Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth, meditations of our heart we've talked about, let the words of my mouth be acceptable to the Lord. The very words. Here, here'd be an interesting, I thought as I was studying this, I thought here's an interesting experiment. Imagine if you could record yourself for a day or two. Just in the background, a little recorder's going, and then you sat back and hit playback. You rewound and hit play. I wonder what you'd hear. Just a thought. Just a thought. I, I, I wonder what you hear. I wonder what words come out of your mouth that, that come out so easily that you don't realize that those words that are coming out, they're not helping the Holy Spirit. You're not feeding the Holy Spirit with, with information and things that he can transform your life with. The words of our mouth. And, and not only the words, but my good buddy, Rod Durazio, it's one of his favorite things. It's not the words, it's the music behind the words. The music behind the words, the attitude in which those words are spoken and said makes a difference. Number five, our faith. We used to walk by sight, but in Christ, we don't. We now walk by faith. The Bible says that everyone's born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. How do we live above the conformity of the world? By faith. How do we turn and, and, and not follow and fall into those molds? By faith. How do we surrender to the Holy Spirit and trusting that he's going to actually transform our lives back and more into the, the image of Christ himself? By faith. Everything we do is by faith. A renewed mind thinks faith first. In the renewing of our mind, faith should always be the first response, responder in our lives. No matter what's happening, good or bad, painful or joyful, faith should respond. Faith should answer the door. Faith is the first thing that needs to rise up by which we react and follow up on. Psalm 119.11 says, I've stored your word in my heart, in my mind, that I might not sin against you. Ephesians 6 tells us about taking up the shield of faith. It's our faith that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy. See, if we're going to be Christians... We have to think Christian. And that's always, always going to rely on our faith. 
Number six, our filter. Okay, our filter. A filter only allows through what's pure. That's the purpose of a filter. Our minds, the filter is the word of God. If we're going to guard our minds, the filter is the word of God itself. Jesus, when he was tempted in the, in the wilderness, how did he resist the temptation? How did he not conform? How did he not fall into one of the patterns or molds that the enemy kept coming back at him with? It is written. Word of God. The word of God was his defense and it was his offense. The word of God. And if his word, his word will never be in us if we're never in his word. Okay? We have to be students of the world. We have to be pupils of the word. We have to be those who follow and, and are, are continually, regularly in the word. Not just checking off a list saying, okay, I read my two chapters today. What did they say? I don't know. I just got it done. We're in the word. And we're thinking about it. We're renewing our minds with it. We're letting the word govern our thoughts. The word of God, remember the Hebrew says in, in 4.12, says it's, it's living, it's active, it's that, it's that sharp, piercing, two-edged sword that's able to discern. Sometimes we can't discern life. Sometimes we're not sure what the next thing is to do. His word knows what's next. His word can bring clarity. His word can, can um, act, be activated in us. And knowing how to respond then and direction to take in life. The last one, number seven, our peace. Anxiety, stress, fear, anger, all of those types of things, they begin in our minds. They don't begin by the circumstance. They begin by how we think about the circumstance. They, be, they begin in our mind. They're a response of our minds. The prophet Isaiah comes along in 26.3 and he says, but you, oh God, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. We, we sang the chorus, turn your eyes on Jesus. As you do, the things of this earth grow dimmer. The size of your giants gets smaller. The severity of your crisis reduces in the light of his glory and grace. As we keep our eyes on him, peace becomes, comes to us. We keep our eyes on Jesus. It gives the Holy Spirit permission to produce his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in us. Love, joy, peace is produced in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. How do we have peace in this life? Meditating on the word of God. Keeping our eyes focused on the person of Jesus Christ. As we do the Holy Spirit, we're releasing the Holy Spirit in us to change how we think, to adjust, to renew our minds. Not just change or reformat our minds, but to make them new, brand new, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm late. You need to stand with me. <clears throat> Let me close this way. The world seeks community. That's a big buzzword. The world seeks community 
through conformity. The problem with that process is that in order to be part of the community, you have to surrender, you have to, you have to give up a lot of who you are. You have to reduce yourself to fit the pattern, to fit the mold. You have to be willing to lay aside even your preferences, even, even your beliefs, even your faith. You have to be able to, willing to lay aside things that might even be contrary or contradicting the scripture in order to be a part of that community. Because conformity requires sameness. Conformity to have community requires that everyone be exactly alike. It's the only way it can work. The Holy Spirit produces community through transformation. That's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. If we wanted to take the world's approach to community through conformity, then next Sunday I want everyone here to dress alike. I want you to have the same shoes on, plan on having the same lunch. Make sure you get up and do the same thing. You get dressed in the same order because otherwise you can't be part of our community because our community rests on conformity. So everybody's reduced. Everybody loses. That's the world's pattern. And we see it unfolding around us, by the way. We see it happening. And, and all of these little communities are, are existing by the... And they're at war with each other. They have no tolerance, no appreciation, no affection for one another at all. And our dignity is being reduced while all that's unfolding. But not in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, the Holy Spirit produces community through transformation. And in transformation, nobody's reduced. Everybody's enlarged. The Holy Spirit makes you more than you ever could be. The Holy Spirit takes what's in you and, and magnifies it, purifies it, enlarges it, expands it. it takes all the uniquenesses that, that were in the mind of God back before creation. You exist because you were in the mind of God and he desired you and wanted you to be. You're here now because you're desired and designed by God himself. And transformation gets you back to fit what God's plan was and model was and vision for your life was. That enlarges you. That makes you more than you could be in any other fashion. And then he takes, only the Holy Spirit can do this. He doesn't go after sameness. He produces oneness, which is a whole different thing. Oneness says... You can be everything God's created you to be. And I can be everything God's created me to be. And they can be different. But somehow we're one. And together we're more. That unity in diversity. The world can't produce that. It's, it's impossible. But through the Holy Spirit... And his transforming power, what emerges from that, the body of Christ in the earth, is what comes out of that. 
that you're not Jesus in the earth. You're not the body of Christ in the earth, but we are. And with the Holy Spirit's help and submission to him, all the parts fit. Perfectly. They fit perfectly. And we cover each other's weaknesses and we magnify each other's strengths. And we become so much more than we ever. Let's, let's not ever seek conformity. Let's not seek sameness. Let's go after transformation. Let's go after the fullness of the oneness that we are in Christ. And it's amazing what God can do through us. This week, let me just challenge you as we close in prayer. Spend some time with the Holy Spirit. I, I, the last few days, I've been just meditating in my mind why he was sent. Scripture's pretty clear about why the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit, what his job is. And I've been using that as a motivation to just to have conversation with him to see if I'm cooperating with what he was sent to do. He was sent as a guide. And he was to guide us into truth. He was sent as a comforter. He was sent as a counselor. He was sent to, to take everything that Jesus said and, and re-speak it to us. He was sent to recall, bring back to our remembrance everything Jesus said. There's a lot of things that he was sent to do. I want to make sure in my life that I'm not interfering with his job. And I think it's a good practice. I encourage you to do that. Get your Bibles out. Um, look up all the texts and scriptures you can find about the, the Holy Spirit and, and how he operates and why the Father and Son sent him. And it's a great, it's just a great way to study the Bible. But in that, you also recognize the areas we need to cooperate with him so that transformation can take place in us. And we can become more and more like Christ himself. Amen. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your word that teaches, that instructs. And your word has the power to change us. Because the Holy Spirit of God who inspired this word is in it. And will work this word in us for our good, your glory. So God, seal your word in our hearts and minds today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to grow and expand inside of us making us who you want us to be individually and then who you designed us to be corporately, the body of Christ in the earth. Father, thank you for your presence here among us. I ask your blessings upon every person and every family that's represented. Dismiss us with your peace and your love in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'm glad you were here today. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Um, Lunch is probably ready or will soon be.